The best way to predict the future is to invent it. Stephen Ambrose brings you up to speed on what the future holds as he explores the latest technology as it impacts our lives. Well, welcome to Tech Talk right here on High FM, where we get deep into all the crazy tech that's out there. And today we are going literally next generation. I'm going to be talking in a few minutes about quantum computing. Intel have made a big, big, big announcement of a commercial-ish version of a quantum chip, and it's going to change everything. I, I did a lot of research on this, but I'm going to play a little clip from Intel just to they, – they really say it a hell of a lot better than I can at any stage, but very cool. Intel's director of quantum hardware, Jim Clark, will take us through some of the – the elements of quantum computing, what it means, where we're going. But we'll talk a lot more about that in um, a little while. Anyway, before we get there, something that has amazed me for absolute ages, eSIMs. Now, it has been an eSIM is a virtual SIM. Instead of getting your little SIM chip or SIM card that you stick into your phone and off you go, you can be sent a QR code, which you scan with your photo, with your camera, and it pops a SIM into the eSIM function of your phone. Now, not all phones have had it or have it anymore at this point, but all the latest Samsungs, all the latest um, Apples have the ability to um, use eSIMs. And they're simple, they're quick. If you lose your SIM, it should be simple to get a new one. They simply email you or WhatsApp you. <laughs> if your phone's working, but um, a new QR code and pop, there goes your eSIM. There are only two issues with eSIMs. The first one is you lose your phone, it's gone. You've got to block it like a normal SIM. Number two, you cannot reuse the QR code you, you originally set up your phone with. You have to apply for a new one to do it. And if you upgrade your phone, you've got to go through the same process. You can't take an eSIM off one phone and transfer it to another phone. I think technically it's possible. Uh, from my understanding of the specs of eSIMs, it's entirely possible. But it's an application that the networks believe are, is not secure. So anyone can then steal your eSIM and carry on regardless. So those two things aside, it's just a great Great idea. It's quick, it's simple, and I highly recommend eSIMs for travel. You load them on your phone, Airello, um, no roaming, you name it. There are tons of, of, of eSIMs to travel around the world. But Vodacom now finally have gone eSIM. So all your all you Vodacom people out there who want to have a dual SIM phone, in other words, a physical SIM and a virtual SIM, on your phone, you can now do it. The other benefit of using eSIMs on phones that can do it is normally you can have three or four eSIMs, if not more, on your phone, which you can switch between. You can only have one active at a time. And you can have your physical SIM active at the same time. So you can have two lines on your phone at all times, either for data, voice, whatever you want to do, using an eSIM and a physical SIM. So that's a huge benefit, and it's really cool what uh, Vodacom have finally done. I've actually been using, they started, eSIM started with Vodacom with Samsung a while back so that they could get it on their watches. Somehow I managed to get it to work on my phone. I've been using a Vodacom eSIM for absolute ages. They told me it's not possible, but I can tell you I've been using it. Kept quiet about it because they might not have liked the idea. But what they've done is now launch a proper eSIM with self-reca. However, the one thing that I do not understand, if you can self-reca 
and you can still do it on an eSIM, why can't you simply log on to your app or log on to your portal, get yourself an eSIM, load it on your phone, just like Arello does or any one of the other eSIM apps do, and load it? Well, you can't. So if you are a Vodacom subscriber and you do want to use an eSIM, you have to physically go into one of their stores and request an eSIM and pay up to 25 Rand or 10 Rand on order, depending on what you're doing. Um, but a prepaid eSIM will cost you 25 Rand. You can do it on that. And a postpaid will probably cost you 10 Rand each to get it through um, the website. But they will still post you a physical QR code, which for me makes... Absolutely zero sense. And it's a huge miss opportunity for Vodacom, but whatever their intention is, there are a lot of Vodacom stores, so it shouldn't be a big problem to go in. But in this day of uh, virtual everything, it just seems really clunky and really silly to force customers to go into a store to switch to a virtual SIM. I hope you got the irony in that one. So anyway, well done, Vodacom, to finally embrace new technology in a way that makes lives easier and simpler. And then not so well done for throwing in a, a, a sort of process that makes it extremely clunky and cumbersome to get your eSIM. But that's where you have it. And for you Adobe users or Adobe, depends on who you are and what you do. But if you're an Adobe, Adobe user right now and you use Photoshop, for whatever reason, and you're a highly technical sort of guy, you don't have to be highly technical, just very creative and know how to use Photoshop, and you subscribe to a fully paid Photoshop subscription. Any of you guys who happen to be using it somehow without paying for it, don't want to know, not going to ask, won't be able to benefit from this. But if you're a, if you're a, a registered user, you can now get their Firefly Artificial Intelligence Image Creator software for free. Now, Anyone who's been watching any of this stuff and watching any of these um, AI revolutionary platforms over the last little while will realize that this is a huge deal. The amount of stuff you can do with, um, with AI in Adobe is absolutely insane. So if you're a subscriber, go and try it out. It's available now. And create some absolutely amazing things. And on that note, we're going to have a quick break for our sponsors, then I'm talking all about quantum, and uh, we'll be back straight after this. This is Tech Talk with Stephen Ambrose on 101.9 High FM. Now, moving on to the whole quantum realm, it's some, it's a, it's essentially a technology that, at some point in time, we're not sure exactly when, but in the near future, not like way into cyberspace down the road, will either change or add to or enhance computing in ways that we cannot even begin to imagine. Now, current computers today are all binary. They're all computers that work in ones and noughts, um, and they've come a long way from room-filling, filling, power-gorging monstrosities using massive hard drives and, and roomfuls of equipment to essentially the chip in your phone which could launch a space shuttle quite easily with room to spare. And that is remarkable. There are chips in everything from your toaster to your fridge to your car to your phone. You name it, it's got a chip in it. I mean, there are a million chips. Even if you have diabetes, you can pop a little thing in your arm, which will monitor your blood sugar. It's got chips in there too. There are chips in cameras and lights. You name it. Chips 
everywhere. And the creators of these chips, the one of their founding companies is Intel. And they have just launched a quantum chip for pretty much general use. It is going to be um, limited to universities for now. But what is so amazing about these chips? They've codenamed it Tunnel Falls. It is a 12 qubit, and I'm not going to explain qubits. As I said, I'm going to play a clip which will explain it in detail that I just can't even get into from an expert in the field. But a qubit is a unit of computing in the quantum realm, and this chip can be stacked, can be used, can be um, operated in ways that we don't even understand. IBM have been extremely advanced in this field for ages. Their system uses ultra-low-cooled, super-cooled chips that can get up to 100 qubits, and amazing stuff is going on in this space. But simply put, quantum computing can deal with complexity, it can deal with computing problems like the weather, genomics, you name it, that that even the biggest supercomputers today, which currently are in use around the world for lots of things, cannot do. So quantum computing really does represent the next step. And the release of this chip in normal sort of world without supercooling and everything using standard transistor technology really, really, really does change so many things in the world. So what will what I'm going to do, I'm going to play this um this clip and it it is absolutely fascinating to understand what is going on in the space and how quantum computing ultimately is going to change our lives over the next little while. This is Tech Talk with Stephen Ambrose on 101.9 High FM. Well, welcome back. Sorry about that technical glitch. For some reason, when I played the clip on my computer, noise cancelled, clever, clever Skype, and uh, you couldn't hear it anywhere else. So I'm going to play it again from a different source, and we should be able to listen in uh, right now to Jim explaining all about com- quantum computing. Think of that coin as spinning. And what? How can quantum computers change our lives in ways that supercomputers today can't even hope to do? As early as 2014, Time magazine highlighted ways quantum computing will change our world. From travel and logistics to image processing, chemistry, pharmacology, improved weather forecasting and cryptography. From my earliest childhood memories, I knew that I wanted to be a chemist. Many people don't realize that all chemical processes can be broken down into quantum physics. Finding a way to make quantum computers a practicality brings me back to my passion in chemistry. In the video today, we'll review the basics of quantum mechanics, which form the basis of making a quantum computer. We'll talk about the components of a quantum computer and when we might achieve quantum practicality, which is when quantum computers will be able to perform useful calculations that improve your life or mine. Finally, we'll talk quantum's need for a full stack, a system, hardware, control, compilers, libraries, algorithms, all need to be reimagined for quantum computing. Hi, I'm Jim Clark, Director of Quantum Computing at Intel, and this is Architecture All Access Quantum. To start our discussion on quantum computing, I want to introduce two key concepts of quantum mechanics. 
The first is superposition. When we think about classical physics, let's start by thinking about a coin. That coin can exist in one of two states, heads or tails. It's one or the other. If it were a classical bit of information, it would be zero or one. In quantum physics, it's best to think of that coin as spinning. And while it's spinning, it has a probability of being in heads and tails at the same time. If it were a quantum bit of information or a qubit, it could represent zero and one. The second key concept I want to introduce is that of entanglement. Let's think of that spinning coin again. While it's spinning, I represent two states in superposition. If I added a second coin spinning, I could represent four states at the same time. Both heads, both tails, heads and tails, tails and heads. If I had three coins, I could represent eight states at the same time. Every time I add a coin, every time I add a quantum bit of information, I increase the number of states I add exponentially. If I had 50 coins spinning on a table, I could represent more states than even the largest supercomputer could achieve. If I had 300 coins spinning, I could represent more states than there are atoms in the universe. That's mind-blowing. But I don't want you to think that we only need to deliver 300 qubits, or the equivalent of 300 spinning coins. These qubits are incredibly fragile. They lose their information at the smallest bit of noise, vibration, and temperature variation. In reality, we're going to need millions of qubits in order to do something that's practical, something that's going to change our lives. Being able to simulate or test all of these configurations is simply not feasible to do in any supercomputer in any fast fashion. Because quantum computers can represent a dramatic number of states at the same time, that would allow us to study and simulate all of those configurations at a much faster rate. In fact, cryptography was one of the first applications proposed for quantum computing, where a quantum system would be able to unencrypt information in a relatively short time that would take a supercomputer thousands, if not millions of years. This is one of the reasons why governments around the world are interested in quantum computer. Let's discuss one application in a bit more detail. Cancer treatments and drug design are commonly studied with high-performance computers. This is a topic of personal importance to so many people that simultaneously highlights the magnitude of computing needed. The way a protein folds determines its function. Misfolding of proteins plays a significant role in diseases like cancer, but also in diseases like SARS. If we can understand how proteins fold, it will help us understand the disease. It will allow us to figure out the type of vaccines, the types of drugs that can help cure those diseases. For everybody on the planet, for every minute of every day. In fact, by 2025, we expect there to be more transistors on Earth than there are biological cells in all humans. This is a mind-blowing statistic. Why is this important? Because if we can build on that transistor technology in order to make our qubit device, we're that much ahead. The transistor is now more than 70 years old. And for those past 70 years, the entire planet has been working to develop this technology. 
It's become the foundation of the semiconductor electronics industry. If we can choose a qubit technology as we move into the quantum era and build on that technology using our transistor knowledge, we will move quicker. Let's take a look at a transistor, something that you may be familiar with from your introduction to physics class. In a transistor, it acts like a switch where you turn on a flow of electrons between the source and drain of the device. Now, instead of having a flow of electrons, let's assume that you can trap just one electron under that device. Now, if we put that device in a magnetic field using the Zeeman effect, we can split the energies available to that electron to being spin up and spin down. Those two states represent the two states of a silicon spin qubit, the zero and the one. And with careful control of that electron, we can put it in a superposition of those two states, where it has a probability of being in zero and one at the same time. Let's assume that we have a chain of single electron transistors, where each of these single electrons represent a qubit. We can actually control the interaction between electrons, the overlap of the electron wave functions, in a manner that allows us to entangle two electrons together. These two concepts form the basis of quantum computing. This is how we realize the control of electrons in spin qubits in silicon. Now that we've introduced the similarity between a silicon spin qubit and a transistor, we can go into some of the other qualities of silicon spin qubits that make this advantageous as a building block for advanced quantum computers. The first is qubit lifetime. We talked about the fragility of these qubits earlier. How long before we lose the information? A spin qubit in silicon lasts on the order of a millisecond. That may seem very, very short to you, but it is something of an eternity in the quantum physics time. Second, because silicon spin qubits bear so much similarity to transistors, we can make them small. In comparison to a superconducting qubit, a silicon spin qubit is roughly a million times smaller. With such a technology, we can pack millions, if not billions, of silicon spin qubits onto an area similar to that of an advanced microprocessor. Finally, because silicon spin qubits are like transistors, we can use the infrastructure of the leading transistor fabrication facilities worldwide to make these devices with the process control necessary to ensure that individual qubits are matched to each other. As we've mentioned before, these qubits are very fragile. Noise, vibration, temperature variation can all cause loss of information. To remedy this or to protect us, we put these spin qubit devices into what's known as a dilution refrigerator, which uses several isotopes of helium in order to cool the devices. This is not like the typical refrigerator you have in your kitchen. With this refrigerator, we can get temperatures down to 10 millikelvin a hundredth of a degree above absolute zero. Another way to think about this is this is 250 times colder than deep space. And at such cold temperatures, we can protect the information inside the quantum bit. 
at these temperatures, we can effectively control or mitigate the noise sources that would cause us to lose information in these devices. Now that we have that quantum processor in the coldest part of our dilution refrigerator, how do we get information into and out of that chip? It's a question of control. We need a path. We need a road. We need the interconnect. Let me give an analogy. Having the world's best qubit, it's like owning a sports car. Sure, you can brag about it to your friends, but unless you have a road, that sports car isn't all that fun. That's what we need here, the road or the interconnects to control our qubits. It's not reasonable to expect that we would have millions of wires going into and out of that refrigerator and controlling the entire qubit chip with room temperature electronics. What we need is cryogenic circuits. Classical compute chips are not particularly optimized to run at very low temperatures. What's happening around the world is optimizing these cryogenic chips to operate at extremely low temperatures, to bring the control closer to the qubit plane rather than outside of the refrigerator. So now that we've talked about how we build and control a quantum processor, what's needed to to turn this into a quantum solution. We need the full stack. We need a system. It is my belief that quantum computing is a fundamentally different way to think about computing. We need research all the way from the hardware, the computing chips, through the architecture, the compilers, the applications, in order to realize the full potential of a quantum computing system, in order to change your life or mine. In this video, we've talked about how quantum hardware is created and the promise that quantum practicality holds. There are challenges ahead in terms of creating a larger number of high-quality qubits, as well as enabling a full quantum system, including error correction and algorithms. But these challenges are meant to inspire. They are meant to excite us and motivate us. Maybe you will be the one to help quantum computers reach their full potential. This is going to be an excellent journey. I'm Jim Clark, and this has been Architecture All Access Quantum. Well, thanks, Jim. That was really, really informative. And Jim won't go away, what can I say? But um, Really a fascinating insight into where quantum computing is going. It's going to revolutionize health. It's going to revolutionize weather. Certainly we'll be involved in all sorts of space travel and many other things. So on that note, we're going to have a quick break for our sponsors, and I'll be back with a cool gadget, not quite quantum, but uh, certainly lots of sounds and whatnot coming in a few secs. This is Tech Talk with Stephen Ambrose on 101.9 High FM. Well, welcome back. And all things quantum, and uh, when a company like Intel gets involved, you know that things are heading very mainstream. IBM's not to minimize the work IBM are doing in that hardware space, but there are many others that are very, very active. And although it's very much something that you're not going to hear much of for now, it's in the very near future going to become a big, big deal Certainly in large-scale computing, cryptography, as you mentioned, healthcare, um, science, so many other fields that need, interestingly, 
one of the biggest growth areas will be in stocks and trading and business. So the whole AI revolution, the whole um, quantum computing possibility revolution linked to that is pretty much moving us into science fiction really, really quickly. But slap down to earth, right to sound bars for um, TVs. And one of the biggest challenges that everybody's had as TVs have got bigger and bigger and flatter and thinner, especially when you're talking about OLED TVs that are three millimeters thick and then some, is to get really good sound out of those TVs. It is physically, you can play as many games as you want, but it's almost physically impossible to come up with a really convincing and full-spectrum sound out of a teeny, thin, aesthetically pleasing, massive TV that you fit in your lounge or on your wall or wherever you put it. And there's not much you can do about that other than add something to add sound. And also a lot of people are not keen on multiple speakers. I know my wife is, and she doesn't want the lounge filled with tons and tons of big speakers and subwoofers and electronic equipment, apart from the fact that she doesn't, you know, not keen to uh, learn how to work all that stuff. The next thing, and that's been around for quite a while now, are soundbars. And LG have just released a brand new soundbar, which is a complete kit, because a lot of them only offer front speakers, some of them don't even offer subwoofers, and with surround sound getting to the place it is with Dolby and all the various platforms that are creating the Dolby Atmos um, platform, which creates space and sound that is really cool, that makes movie theaters, it's really nice to have at least rear speakers and a, and a front array that creates space. Well, the new soundbar, the LG S95QR, I spent some time with it in the last few weeks, and I've been playing quite, playing quite loud, much to the distress of neighbors and people in the house. But uh, that being said, it is essentially a good quality soundbar. It's not that small. It won't fit under tiny TVs. And in fact, it didn't fit under my LG uh, OLED. Um, it sort of fitted in front, took up a bit of room. The subwoofer is and the rear speakers that come with it are wireless. So you get one, you just plug them into the mains, you use the app to set them up, and it's really, 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 really simple. The I know no one likes to play with um, manuals, but the quick start-ish part of it is so easy, and it's really simple. It takes the, you plug it in using HDMI cables to your, your TV. It's got a couple of inputs which you can plug various things like a, an Apple TV or a streaming device or anything that you want into it. Xbox works really well. So very simple to set up, very simple to use. And essentially it has 17 speakers built in with about 250 watts of power. So I have a rather large room and I found it was perfectly adequate for that. It really, really filled the room with a lot of sound. It's got a very nice AI room calibration feature. So it then listens, you sit there with your phone and it listens to the to the sound that's coming off, all test tones come out, and off you go, and you have pretty good sound. It is a nine point one point five soundbar system. So there's seventeen speakers, upward founding firing center drivers. That doesn't work very, very well with very large rooms and high ceilings, but it it still adds sort of a dimension to the sound. And the little rear speakers work perfectly well. You've just got to lift them up off the floor. That can be an issue in itself. 
mount them on a wall, mount them on a little stand, and they work extremely well. The subwoofer can be a little bass heavy, but you can manage it extremely well. So if you're looking, and I mean, it's not important that you have an LG TV. It can fit onto any TV. The one thing I like is that they use meridians to help with the sound tuning. And I've often found that the LG sound tuning is very natural. Voices are very clear. The bass is quite melodic, not entirely connected because there's a slight delay in the technology. But you can compensate for that in placing. And there are a lot of things that you can do to make it work extremely, extremely well. So if you're looking for it, it's not that cheap. It's around about 22,000 Rand for a complete setup. But then again, if you're spending a lot of money on a good TV, a soundbar could outlast a couple of TVs. Setup is easy. It doesn't take up a lot of space other than the subwoofer, which is pretty good. And the sound quality truly is good. It improves sport enormously. It makes movies super uh, immersive. The Dolby Atmos and the creation of sounds around the room is pretty good. So check it out. It is the new uh, LG S95QR, and it is really very, very satisfying to improve the quality of the sound that you've got used to off a thin little TV. So give it a shot. And on that note, we'll be back straight after this. Um, we've got a quick you know, break for our sponsors as usual. And then I've got one last little thing that I want to talk about, uh, which... Uh, it could be quite interesting for you guys who use Cell C. So on that note, we'll be back straight after this. This is Tech Talk with Stephen Ambrose on 101.9 High FM. Switching across, Cell C have finally announced that they have migrated all their customers to MTN and Vodacom. Now, may not mean a lot to most people if they are a Cell C subscriber or they use Cell C prepaid. Theoretically, you should not have even noticed that something has happened, but all prepaid uh, customers are on the MTN network and all postpaid contract customers on the Vodacom network. What it really means is that, in my opinion, the quality of the MTN and Vodacom network is pretty much world-class, load shedding aside, uh, towers with vandalized batteries and, and generators and other stuff aside. If you have no signal, you have no, no nothing. But apart from that, there are really countrywide high-quality networks. Also, um, at this stage, the one drawback is there is no 5G. But again, that only really is relevant in major centers and major cities for now, although the 5G network is rolling out faster and faster. But the benefit for Celsius subscribers is that I have no doubt that 5G roaming will come to Celsius subscribers in the nearest future, in the next I would say six months to a year at the very latest, something to look forward to. Not that 5G makes a huge difference to the experience with good signal, but go into an area where there are a lot of users, where 4G is getting a little bit uh, heavy with what's going on now with load shedding, a lot of people using LTE or 4G for their main connection to the Internet. You find that the 4G 4G network slows down really quickly, whereas the 5G network won't. It has... 1,000 times or 100,000 times more capacity than a 4G network in terms of both subscribers and throughput. So a 5G network will stay stable, give you a connection, even in a soccer stadium with 20 or 30,000 people where the 4G network would simply show you full 4G signal, but nothing will happen. You won't send, you won't receive. Many of us have had that problem over the years at, at, at stadiums around the world, just no signal for no reason. 
So if you're a Celsi customer, you can check it out on your phone. Shouldn't see any difference really. They work through what they call a virtual RAN, virtual radio access network, and it's completely seamless to the user. So check it out if you're a Celsi user and see where you're going with all the stuff and um, see how that plays out for you. But I believe it offers better service and Celsi can then focus on customer service, which is not one of their strongest areas over the last few years. But let's see where this all goes. So Celsi remains, but they don't own their own radios at all. All the masts and towers now belong pretty much to MTN, Vodacom, and a few from Telcom out there. So a lot of stuff going on in the mobile space. And the last thing I really want to talk about is if you're a big Uber user, which most of us are at some level, either use an Uber to travel around or you use Uber Eats or you use Uber delivery services. Not one I've used a lot, but it apparently I've spoken to people who have and they said it's pretty good. They've launched a product called Uber One. Now, Uber One has been around uh, in the U.S. and many other countries around the world. And what it is is a subscription service for ride hailing and delivery. You pay 50 rand a month, which is not an excessive amount of money, or 500 rand a year. And then what that does, um, it gives you a wide range of different benefits. You start with an unlimited Nortrand delivery up to and a Nort percent service fee on food and groceries from Uber Eats. You also will get a 20 Rand in Uber Cash if the order arrives after the latest arrival estimate. So we all moan and groan about that, but you get some money back if they're really, rate, uh, really late. You also get 5% off on the value of your, your rides in Uber Cash. In other words, you can use it for your next trip. And um, it seems like, depending on your usage, it seems like quite a good deal. And on that note, I'm afraid we have to wrap up. I'm being told it's time to go, time to move on to the cubits that uh, uh, await me in my normal working day. And uh, have a great week. Enjoy what's, uh, this lovely winter weather. And I'll be back, same place, same time, on Chai FM with Tech Talk. Next Thursday, this is Stephen Ambrose for Tech Talk on High FM.